I think I'm having an art attack. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Art Attack, our 101st episode. So where, anybody, there's a mic stand behind there. People don't see it. Oh yeah, or I can stand. But I'm so excited about this because yes. our podcast for 100 episodes deep now have really been the perspective, my perspective and Justin's perspective. And so it was really important to us to create this participatory dialogue with you guys, with anyone who has a question related to any aspect of the art world. We will do our best to respond to it. By the way... Don't be shy. Just get up there right now yeah. and ask us a fucking question. And if we don't know, we'll tell you. Yeah. But if we don't know, she'll know. So don't worry <laughs> about it. I, um, funnily enough, my question was on Duchamp's fountain, and you seem to hit on it already. My original question was if, there, if it was true that there really was no precedent for what he had done when he showed it. So I'm going to amend that since it's been answered uh, to a yes. I, I, or a no, there was no precedent, really. I well, hasten Can you explain to Duchamp's, what he's talking about to everybody? Yeah, of course. Okay, so in 1917, Marcel Duchamp, a French artist who had surrealist roots in Europe and also in the United States, he had the idea to completely explode the concept of what defines sculpture. So instead of molding something from marble like Michelangelo did or casting something in bronze like a Rodin. He took a pre-existing pre-made object, in this case a urinal, and he flipped it on its axis, wrote Armut as the signature, and then called it Fountain. And the way that he was able to get that piece into the mainstream was brilliant. There was an open sculpture show and anybody could pay $6 and submit their work. And people were shocked. They did not want to put a urinal in a public precious exhibition space, but they had to. And then this really launched a whole generation of artists who are seeing the beauty and the creative possibility in something that is made already part of our worlds, but somehow repurposed. And I do not know any artists who did this prior to Duchamp, but I, I don't want to say anything in an absolutist way. So to me, he was among the first, if not the first. So cool. And so I'm going to amend to, to just ask how long it takes to see his influence in the work of others. I don't think very long at all. I see a ton of different artists using the language, using Duchampian strategies. And an example that's immediately coming to mind would be Warhol. What is his source material if not something that's pre-existing in our zeitgeist? But we can even go back further. And the, um, so that would be a, my, my initial response is definitely the 60s onwards. And people, so in the 1930s, a Kurt Schwitters, for instance, he would scour the streets of Germany picking up picking up any object that he saw that he was influenced by. And then he would create these towers called Mertzbaums from these objects. Now, he never would have had that idea to do without the precedent of Duchamp. So that was in the 30s. And yeah, those are pretty recent examples. So I think that his impact and his power was almost immediately felt. Amazing. Thank you. Congrats on the 101. Thanks. Thank you. 
Oh, you guys don't have to apply them. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? Um, I have kind of a two-part question to piggyback off of the closing discussion of the last podcast, and it's basically people that can't do shit but have people do it for them. Like, what does that look like? And then is the craft, and to that, is the craftsman more important than the designer or vice versa? Or does the designer need to be the craftsman? Well, I'll answer that. Uh, <laughs> what Lizzie and I disagree on this. We've always disagreed on this. Uh, I've become more open-minded because I know that the historically the output of a like I said before a Peter Paul Rubens who was way way he had way too many commissions I myself have so many commissions right now that I almost feel like oh my god I got to hire but for I don't trust anybody to do what I need to be done to get done so although I have Manny and he's amazing he's not Manny yeah man you know Manny wears 47 hats I don't really have anybody to do what I need to be to get done but that's the kind of artist that I am you know and I look at a I look at the world and you know it's really about the commodification of the cultural landscape and it's how much can I get out to the universe Jeff Koons studio he's got scaffolding of several different artists my opinion is those artists are way more technically proficient than he is himself Kastabi is another one. Then you've got a million billion other artists who are not doing their work. If you look at Kehinda Wiley, start out doing all his work, and then he got inundated with commissions. He blew up, and now he's had to hire a plethora of artists to paint his work. Now, he's giving us access visually to that information. We all know that he has other artists doing his stuff. Do I think that's okay? No. I don't, because it doesn't have, you're not getting a Kahinda Wiley, you're getting Joe Blow and Nancy, whatever, but you know, you don't know what he's really doing. She thinks that because they are under his watching eye, that that's okay, because he essentially moves into the production designer, art director, which, it, look, we're talking about a big feature animation or a big movie, you're getting a production designer, that's totally good. I production design big features, but that's a collaboration. If you're an artist, you're a visual artist, and you're painting, and you're buying a Bua, or you're buying a Kahinda Wiley, or a Banksy, you should be getting it from that motherfucker. That's my opinion. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that. That's like, wait a minute, that. just I thought about it, like you, if you get a base hit, and then you get this dude to run for you, I always felt weird about that too. <laughs> like, I'm not that fast, but this motherfucker, he's fast as shit, you know what I mean? So like. That's always felt weird to me, but that's how it is, like a little bit. And I don't disagree. I'm just saying that the concept to me is on equal footing. And I am thinking about this artist, Eve Klein, in the 1960s. And he's the guy who was really famous for this YKB, Eve Klein Blue, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen, even if you don't know that it came from him. And he did this very iconic and problematic performance in 1960 where he hired all these models and he asked them to be nude and covered themselves in this blue paint and then the models would drag each other against a horizontally oriented canvas. And behind them there was a full orchestra. They played one single note for the entire duration of the performance 
And he was quoted as saying, I didn't even want to dirty the tips of my fingers. Now this, I think, is why we have second wave feminism happening in the 70s, because the women are literalized as objects. They are the paintbrushes. But is Eve Klein the artist of that work, or are the models, the women who are physically dragging each other's bodies? And I think it's Eve Klein. And it's certainly ethically slippery. And especially when you have a collective, another, this feminist arti artist in the 70s, Judy Chicago, she did a huge benchmark piece called The Dinner Party. And I won't go into that, because I could talk about that for a whole episode. But it's only credited as being hers. It isn't Judy Chicago and this whole suite of dozens of other people. And so I think that the authorship question is a tricky one. But personally, if somebody is transparent that they are the designer, to me, I think that is just as valuable and there's just as much room for them as somebody who happens to have the magical gift of the process. But if you were on Tinder, and you swipe, and then someone else showed up, you'd be a little yeah, you'd be like, pissed. You'd be pissed. I'm just saying. Now, I'm going to comp complicate this discussion a little bit further than I'm done. So to tie in back to art and hip hop, the kind of sonic foundation of hip hop is the DJ. And it is basically playing the breaks, mixing two, and then going into the actual production of the music, sampling other musicians' music, other musicians' a sliver of sound, and then, then taking that piece and doing something different in a very Duchampian way. It's a found, you know, found musical object, and then recontextualizing that sound for a different purpose. So. Brilliant, so thank you. So you're agreeing with Lizzie. Yes. That was another way of I saying, I agree Come with back. Lizzie. I don't want to... Boo to be butthurt, but I agree with Lizzie. No, that's we're okay. both right. No, that's no, the that's point. Okay. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated yes, thing. Um, about the subject, what do you think about, though, how, like, because you said in, in hip-hop there's, there's the, what was the four elements? It was the, the beat boys, the... MCs, graph, DJ, graph writer. Yeah. And, the, and the MCs, yeah. So when you were saying how it's odd for someone to take credit, in MCs, though, there's ghostwriters all the time. Yep. And you guys don't know at all who writes yeah. your lyrics, but it could be your favorite artist who's doing it, and you don't care at all. Most people until you, yeah. But then when you find out, you're kind of like that. So do you find it different where it's like, the visual aspect is kind of a little more authentic maybe since it's like, right? right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, look, everything is a collaboration. Even if I'm doing a painting, I ask like Manny, hey, what do you think of this? Oh, I don't like the hand. Oh shit, I gotta redo the hand. But he's not painting it for me. You know what I mean? And in terms of MCs, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Some things will never change, but um, it, yeah. No, but I think that like if you look at uh, if you look at if you look at the biggest artists in the world, whether it's Murakami, you know Murakami is very transparent about. It. He's got some of the best calligraphers in the world. He's got some of the best sculptors in the planet. He's got it's a team of people, and he's transparent about it. Koons is transparent. Other artists are not. Other artists are ashamed. Um, and sometimes the work you think you're getting from that person is might not be the work that you're getting from that person. That's more of the issue that I have. Gotcha. Yeah, I and I do my saying. own shit anyway, because yeah. I can. I think a lot of people can't, and that's the other it's issue. It's kind of like you don't want to trick nobody. You're like, if you're going to buy my stuff, you're going to get it directly from me. Right. And it's like my authentic stuff. Right? Exactly. Got it's got it. my DNA. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you.
My mother. Hi, Mama. <laughs> well, congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Anyway, I am enchanted by this idea of the intersection between music and art. And I love the hearing about the whole hip-hop experience. Can you think of another example through art history or music history where this same exciting intersection has occurred? Can I go first? You're going to say, <laughs> uh, only if you say jazz and abstract expressionism. Oh, I love talking about okay, abstract no, but you, expressionism. You, you, no, no, no. no you, you go first and last. Go ahead. Yeah, so in the 50s, actually the late 50s, there was this beautiful, profound moment where music collided elegantly with art, and that was with the composer John Cage and the visual artist Robert Rauschenberg. So at this point, we're coming out of a time that's all about Pollock. So Pollock is the guy who did those drip paintings, so it's all about the accumulation of the surface. It's so much, there's no hierarchy, everything is equally activated and chaotic. So that's Pollock. And then I see art trends that art movements are either extensions of what came before or rejections. And what happened after Pollock was definitely a rejection. And people like Robert Rauschenberg are embracing the concept of elimination of the void. So not the power of what is produced, but of the power of what is not shown. And Rauschenberg, he would do these paintings with this all over white color, and he called them clocks because if you really were attuned to them, God, you're gonna hate this, you could tell what time of day it was based on the shadows that were cast. And so it's this minimalistic exercise in meditation, in contemplation, in the slowing down of a viewing process. So again, it's about what is not shown rather than what's shown. And similarly, Cage, he had this composition called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds with a full orchestra once again, and for that amount of time, it's total silence. And every performance is different because people are gonna be uncomfortable and they're gonna shift around, they're gonna cough. And so the ambient noises become the piece. And so it's not about the musical sounds, but about the elimination of our expectation and the thwarting of what we typically see as musical. So thanks, Mama. And I really didn't ask you to ask that, so thanks. I feel like that was a plant. It was definitely no, it was, not. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is a very general art question. Um, forgive me if it's been discussed in the show before, but I'm just curious, are there any pieces or perhaps whole bodies of work that you find truly like disgusting or shocking or just outright offensive, but you constantly find yourselves coming back to? Yes. Do you want to go first? You do? Yeah. What? I mean, disgusting, but I keep on coming back to it is really the second part of that question. Yeah, so in the 60s, again, kind of dismantling the preciousness of process that we have discussed, this conceptual artist named Manzoni, he produced a series of work called The Artist Shit. And see, I, I curse, just not, not the F word. And what this is tons of little cans filled with the excrement of the artist and then sealed, and then he would price it based on what the weight of that can would be if it were gold. And so he is literalizing this concept that the artist shit is gold, and that any product of an artistic body is something that the suckers, us, these art consumers, that they want to acquire. And I'm dying to 
not buy one of these because they sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. But don't you want to unseal it and see what's in there? But you can't because if you do that, then the art object is gone. And so it's really just this amazing performance. And I think that he attacks in a satirical but also a really kind of lighthearted, humorous way the mechanisms of the art world. So I am at once repulsed knowing that the artist has contained his shit and also dazzled by the, uh, the structure of the project. I mean, for me, it's, it's more, I don't, I, Lizzie and I differ very much on artists like Rauschenberg, on Jackson Pollock, on Olaf. Uh, Eliason, oh, that Eliason, was a good one. Yeah, you, if you guys listen to the Olaf Eliason episode, you don't even have to hear my answer because you can hear it for about 15 minutes on that podcast. So you should check out Olaf Eliasson and Rauschenberg and Pollock. Oh, remember when you said Yoko Ono was trash? <laughs> there, there are certain musical and, and visual artists that I, I don't like, you know? And I, people think I'm a curmudgeon, but I think I'm just being honest. And I think a lot of people are never really open with how they feel. And I feel like it's important to take a stand for what art really is because you get into these penumbras of art history, the gray areas where you think like, just because this person is hanging at the Metropolitan or the Musée d'Orsay, he's gotta be important or, or she has to be important and valuable. Just because this person sold at Christie's for X amount, they are obviously, I'm missing something, but I must like it because people are inherently sheep and they follow trends, they follow what other people say is, oh, it got written up in, in New York Times, you know, or the New Yorker did an article about this artist. Let's, there has to be somebody to, discern between what is art and what is not. And that's why if you go back and listen to the, this would take a whole episode to talk about, to wax poetically, which I think I already did, on artists like Pollock, on artists like Rauschenberg, uh, on artists like, uh, you know. Yeah, those are fun, feisty episodes, and it's true. And so I think that you've really identified clearly what your perspective of what art is. And I think for me, I'm always trying to imagine what art could be. And Did so you hear that? She was like, I'm open-minded. No, no, no. And he... <laughs> that was that a little microaggressive. I'm sorry. That was a, that was a very sorry. weird euphemistic code for you're a closed-minded <laughs> no. motherfucker. But, uh, no, I think most people agree with you. And I think that's totally fair. I don't totally know if fair. that's true, though. See, I think most people agree with me from a populist standpoint. But from a standpoint of what's going on in the art world, 99% of the people agree with you. And I think it's important to actually hold and say, no matter what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold strong and be the last bastion of mindfulness to represent the importance of artistic ability. And I feel like I'm really in the minority there. So what's the most disgusting work of art to you? It's always my own work. So that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I look at my, no, sometimes I do, oh, did I do that? So it's different, you know, because it, it always has to come from a personal space. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I actually want to know what are your thoughts about Instagram and social media affecting art now and how it's going to influence future artists? Mine. Uh, great question because uh, this morning uh, on Spectrum, I said to the interviewer that, you know, I'm a, I'm a populist, I'm a populist artist, and although I've shown at Los Angeles County Museum of Art, 
I think by the popularity of my posters, a lot of that academic world, the ivory tower world of galleries and museums, was uh, telling me early on in my career not to pollinate the public with posters, which I did the opposite. And now there's a trend towards artists trying to get their work out to the masses. So I think Instagram democratizes the public space for artists so that it makes it an even playing field. Once upon a time, very few artists can get into Ace Gallery. Very few artists can get a show at the MoCA. But I think with Instagram, if the people like your work and resonate, then you can, you can rise to the top fast. And by doing that, galleries will come to you. So for me, it evens the playing field for younger artists, for artists that are not as exposed. Um, obviously, there's a lot of crap there, but I've found so many artists on Instagram that have blown my mind that it's kind of trippy. Like, I've actually gone like, whoa, like, who's that? I would have never found that artist back in the days when I was on Mi Gente. No, I'm kidding. That's a, or Black Planet or Asian Avenue. You guys, you guys remember that? That's crazy. But, or Facebook. You know, there's, there's, there's a platform, in my opinion, that evens the playing field. So I think it's a good thing. Uh, but I don't know what you think. Yeah, I love the way you discuss it as democratizing because that is really important to me, just making art content accessible to anybody who's interested. I also see a shadow side. And I think that Instagram often, or can at least, stymie creative growth. And an example of mine is that I know a lot of street artists and there's this one who wanted to evolve his style, but he was so upset because the picture didn't do well on the gram. And he's like, all right, I'm just gonna go back to what I did before. So I think that it, it gets in the way of mm -hmm. people evolving because you're always trying to pander to the likes, to the DMs, to the whatever. And I like that you are able to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with artists. That's actually my favorite part of Instagram is that it's so ubiquitous that you can contact Bua if you want to and then have a, a relationship with him and that makes the work. Or my or assistant. The, no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. It's me. It's me. It makes the acquisition of his work so much more meaningful to you because you often don't establish those relationships if you purchase in traditional ways. But I do think that artists are so concerned with how stuff does on Instagram that in that regards, it kind of uh, cuts them off at the legs. Yeah, I mean, I'd say if I was going to weigh it, I would weigh to the positive, but I think that's true. I mean, I think that everybody feels that, you know, and they might be taking the likes away anyway. They've already done it in Canada. I think that's a bad idea, but that's a whole other show. Thanks, Thank Teresa. You. Thank you. Teresa, everybody, ladies and gentlemen. Anyone else? Anything? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're close to the mic, you have to speak. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you for, thank you, first of all. It was wonderful. It was so interesting. And I didn't, I, I, of course, I was familiar. I'm the one in six white person who watched Good Times. <laughs> so I was like, I know that painting. Yeah. And, uh, and it's true. There was five channels. I remember that, too. Yeah. Um, so my question is, or my observation is, is, uh, economic distribution, um, perhaps one of the reasons that hip-hop was able to blow up was that that was still the lagging time of prosperity, um, even though it was not, uh, not good at the time compared to, but I feel like as uh, economic distribution has gotten more worse, 
in this country that art has become also economically distributed. So if you were able to get through in 1990, uh, when there was still some prosperity, then you were able to find some success. I mean, I was a part of a huge uh, collective in New York in the aughts. None of us made it out, man. We're all broke as shit. And the reason is, is there's no money. It doesn't have to do with the talent or the art. It has to do with the fact that no one has any money anymore. And uh, it's ruining art. That's my, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. That's my kind of opinion. There, yeah, I think a, Justin is the perfect person to no. comment on that because he has really circumvented the traditional path of the art world. And he has yeah. garnered so much success and acclaim. And he has done it on his own terms. And that was one of the things that I was first so inspired by. So maybe you can address that. There's a really, if you guys don't know the work of Brad Holland, he's an illustrator that I grew up with. He was in the Lawrence Carroll, Marshall Arisman era of early illustration in the 80s, Brad Holland. He's got a really cool illustration where there's a guy with a giant pot and he's pouring it down. And then the other guy who's smaller has a smaller pot and he's getting what scraps are left and then he's pouring his down. And the, the guy in the bottom is holding his hands out and it's even going through his hands because the economic distribution is not fair and it's not in alignment what, with what the world and the government says it is, obviously, right? There's a lot of money exchanging hands here, and the rest of the people have very little to play with. You know, that's why I came from a world in New York City. I grew up in Harlem, and, you know, it was very clear then, and now it's, uh, it's, it's in my opinion, even clearer. And the arts, if you look at the, the National Endowment of the Arts and other programs, they've been cut everywhere. I mean, it's just cut. So to make it as an artist is, is quite difficult. But what I do see is that because of platforms like Instagram or whatever, I, I've always been like, if you are a hustler, you just have to hustle. And that's kind of been my MO. And you know, a lot of it is hustle, a lot of it is hard work, persistent determination, and a lot of it is luck, you know, to me. Like, it's luck. I'll, my work became popularized because I was painting narratives of the culture and putting it out on a mass level and a commercial level before anybody did it on that level. So I got there first, you know what I'm saying? I didn't say anybody else wasn't doing it at the time, I don't know, but I definitely got there first. And I got there in a hostile environment where my distributor said, you shouldn't do this, this is a terrible idea, keep painting your jazz imagery. And I was like, no, I wanna paint hip hop because that's the culture I'm from. And he was like, it's terrible. And everybody, Everybody turned their back on the painting in America, and it wasn't until Canada distributed in the college market that I sold millions and then, and then tens of millions back in the States later. So there's always a myriad of things that you have to do to become successful. And the reality is there's a lot of great artists who never make it. That's a sad truth. And a lot of great artists who don't make it in their lifetime. Vincent van Gogh couldn't move a box of paintings for 12 bucks. That's what he sold, a box of paintings. Now, Starry Night, arguably, is worth more than Manhattan. Arguably. You can't put a fucking price on that painting. That painting is the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It is. And Van Gogh couldn't sell that shit. Nobody wanted it. Gauguin was like, eh, it's okay. You know what I mean? You know, it was a lot of people were like, eh, it's all right. But it's... It's a lot of things. To me, it's hard work, dedication, persistence, getting knocked on your ass, getting back up, 
and luck. So I feel you. I have a lot of friends who are fucking good and really talented and guys who worked in big, big jobs who can't get work anymore. So, you know, everything is rough. It's not just art. It's music. It's, it's the arts and it's other aspects too. And congratulations on the 100th episode. Um, so you started creating a lot of your work in sort of this capsule of social and political, um, or social and economic desperate sort of areas. So do you see that there's um, a resurgence of an underculture of art that's developing as a result of the social and political pressures that exist today? Like, are you seeing this sort of like movement, like what happened in the 60s where there was, you know, it was everywhere. It was in the music, it was in the art, it was in the culture. And I feel like we're kind of hitting this tipping point where people are really craving authentic work again. And have you guys all sensed that there's a movement happening in that direction already? Oh, definitely. I think that there's so much artivism manifesting on the streets. And I love your hearkening back to the 60s because that's really the first time in America that streets were used for this kind of political intent with the Vietnam War and with assassinations that were happening on the streets with second wave feminism, with the Black Panther movement. I mean, all of that was happening outside in a public space. And I do think we're seeing a resurgence of that. Again, art is cyclical. And so for a while, it was more about the aesthetics. And I love Banksy. I think that he is whimsical and playful. And the way that he's able to integrate his design with the built environment is pretty brilliant. But it's not often political. I guess now the work that he's doing is. But I think that that's the tenor of the times, that people like In Decline, like Thrashbird, there are tons of people who are working on the streets, subverting billboards, and just relaying the authentic truth of their message in any way that they can. Well, and another question I had for you as well is, um, one of the things that you had mentioned about turning the billboard into a living space, what I'm really seeing is that art is a real capability of building community, which I think is the future, localizing our artists, localizing our communities, our distribution of material things. Um, so do you see that that community element is gonna be a bigger part of it moving forward? Is that like a trend you're also seeing? Yeah, I mean, the work of JR, I think really speaks to what you're identifying. Do you know his stuff? I don't, but I should. So he is a street artist, and well, uh, he is a French artist. He started out in a graffiti crew, and now he is probably the preeminent street artist working today who is anonymous. You do know him, you just don't know you know him. Yeah. He's one of those. You definitely you know do. I mean? So he did the first, uh, this public art exhibition, he called it the largest gallery in the world, and he went to Israel and he photographed Palestinians and he photographed Israelis, so people who are both butchers, people who are both whatever it is, and then he put those two images side by side. And the whole point is trying to dismantle hatred and equalize our humanity and our shared experiences. And so I think that was an early attempt to forge community using art as this weaponized, in the best way, medium. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chance. Um, two, well, a couple things that I wanted to address. Um, firstly, I, Justin, I wanted to say that as soon as I saw that piece that I was talking to you about earlier, I knew Good Times immediately. I was like, Good Times was an influence, and I can see it in all of your work, and I think that's dope. Um, I really enjoyed the discussion about the Harlem Renaissance and um, the history of black art specifically, and how it 
correlates uh, to the Harlem Renaissance and how hip hop and all of that, they just completely work together um, to create this, you know, uh, this genre. Um, but my question for you about your art is about uh, filmmaking and cinematography. Um, I'm a filmmaker and I see a lot of um, storytelling and a lot of movement in your pieces. And I wanted to ask if uh, cinematography or filmmaking was any sort of influence for you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, clearly, right? That's the end. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, they, uh, Great no, yeah, no, for sure. Like, I feel like I don't look necessarily at as many contemporary artists. I look at more artists from the past, but I also look at filmmakers. Uh, I mentioned Scorsese earlier. Uh, a lot of cinematography really influences my work. In fact, I pause many films to paint from or to get compositions from because some of those DPs, they're usually some weird dude from Czechoslovakia or some Hungarian guy, just incredible. Just they have such a great eye. And so I'm looking more towards their compositions and their color palette. Like if you watch Handmaiden's Tale on Hulu and you look at the color palette from that, those palettes, they're really beautiful and they're really good to paint from. They're limited palettes. Uh, a lot of them in really cool light. The way that they can compose with shapes and silhouettes is really beautiful. So I will look at that more than I will look at other art. Because to me, a lot of art that's going on today isn't hitting me as powerfully. But it's a, it's a good observation. I would say also dance. I watch a lot of dance. Uh, I think that that definitely is important because when you draw the body, we're mostly water. So you have to get the flow and the gesture and the rhythm. And when I taught classical figure drawing at USC for 12 years, that was one of my lectures, was rhythm. I did a three-hour lecture on rhythm. You know, I did a three-hour lecture on gesture. I did an hour lecture on shape. So uh, I would say that, that film and dancing over art influences my work. Thank you. One more question? No, I think, OK. Yes, all right. Yeah, you're loud enough. Yeah, yeah. Observation, question, it's kind of a mixed hodgepodge. Um, knowing that you're a purist, all right, and knowing about the elements and everything that makes up the basis of hip hop, you've only painted certain figures in hip-hop who have a certain recognition. Obviously, some of the pioneers I've noticed that you've done so far, uh, Rakim, Run DMC, uh, of course, a lot of soul artists, uh, you just did Aretha Franklin, Prince. My question in regards to hip-hop, is there anyone of the new age, but I really wouldn't call it hip hop, and you might agree with me. That's uh, another story. <laughs> Are there any figures that stand out to you in regards to artists that you might think about challenging yourself to paint? On oh yes, yeah, absolutely. I was. I would love to paint if I had time. That's what I. That's that's my greatest obstacles time but uh, I mean I would love to paint Kendrick Lamar I think he's he's great he's great I think J. Cole's great he's one of my favorites 
Um, not gonna paint little Nas. Uh, it's just not not my thing. Um, but you know, I think a lot of people are really in, and you know sometimes it's like I could like their music. I might not think that their music is historically important or will stand the test of time, like a Cardi B. Perhaps I don't know. Like, see, we don't know yet. It's, we don't have 2020 hindsight, but. She would be an interesting subject, you know what I mean? Because she's such a hustler. She's the quintessential hustler. And she's so interesting. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of people I would paint, for sure. One more. Uh, I want to make a suggestion. Now that you said that, someone crosses my mind who's very colorful. Yes. Kind of on her way out, or actually, I think she made a decision to, to retire. I would love to see you see a rendition of Nicki Minaj. Yeah, I've already painted her because I was up for directing the Little Wayne Nicki Minaj song on Wayne. Remember that song they did together? That song was incredible, by the way. So I did a whole storyboard palette for that job for Little Wayne's team, and I painted her in that. But like, I didn't paint paint her. But no, she's really, you know, once again, she's a character. She's a, she's a real, you know, she. Everybody deserves to be painted, and I don't just paint, you know, these, these, no, it's true, like the average, you know, everybody deserves to be painted, and I didn't, I don't paint just people who are celebrities, like I painted Bourdain, and I painted, I painted all these people, but I also paint these archetypes who are just archetypal. He's the archetypal MC, he's the archetypal B-boy, he's the archetypal DJ, these people are ethnically, uh, sometimes, people of color, but sometimes they're ethnically ambiguous. Like the DJ, I wanted to make sure that people knew this motherfucker was Filipino-centric too, because Filipinos brought so much to the game and the culture, especially turntablism. So a lot of my characters are archetypal, I'd like to say. Uh, and some of my characters are specifically people like Kurt Cobain and Tom Petty, who I've also painted. Um, so I, I just like to paint, and I feel like that's what I like to do. But uh, we're going to wrap it up and say thank you so much. But before, thank hold you, on. Thank you. I want to videotape everybody saying thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.